So this is the time in our service when we give attention to the preaching of God's word. And our hope, as I said earlier, is that God would meet us in this time through his word so that it affects not only our head, our hearts, but also our hands. And so let me pray and ask God that he would do that. So Father, thank you that you did not remain silent, but you spoke and you gave us your word so that we would know you, so that we could love you, and so that we could follow you. I pray that you would use this broken man, this imperfect man, this broken vessel to hold out water of eternal life. Use these scriptures to form us and shape us and to change our desires so that they might be honoring and pleasing to you so we can be a blessing to those around us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You can be seated. So as we start this morning, I'd like to ask you a question. How would you finish this sentence? Jesus came to what? Like, what would you fill in that blank? Or maybe another way to think about that is to turn it into a sentence. The reason Jesus came was to what? I mean, why did Jesus come? Was it to start a political movement? Maybe that's your answer. Maybe it was to preach. You know, he was a preacher. He was a teacher. Or maybe Jesus came to heal. There's a lot of brokenness, a lot of sickness in this world. Or maybe Jesus came to die on a cross. Or maybe you're going, I, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe he didn't really have a purpose. I mean, couldn't it just be that life just kind of happened? That the events and circumstances and the turmoil, the political climate around him, it, he was just kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time. I mean, whatever you put in that blank, what you're doing is creating the purpose statement of Jesus, the reason that he came. And it's getting at the question of why. You see, questions of why reach up under the how and the what, and they provide the foundational purpose and mission and vision that literally drives everything that you do. Everybody has a why that's driving what they're doing. And it, and, it, and it wraps around our fundamental beliefs and the causes that we care about. And we walk out of this room every day with this why that drives us. And the leaders who have shaped the world, they've had clear and compelling whys, haven't they? They were able to articulate it in such a way that it started a movement that people came around them to help them achieve whatever it was that they were going for. And they've left legacies. So what about Jesus' why? What was his purpose? I mean, it'd be hard to argue, right, that Jesus is one of the most important figures in all of human history. And for all of, it, all of his influence, many people have speculated about Jesus and his purpose. I mean, some have said, you know what? He was a good teacher. That's really what he was here to do. He was trying to show people a better way to live, kind of a moral ethic, a guideline that would lead to human flourishing. And others say, I don't know, man, he, he kind of had a screw loose. He was a religious fanatic and he died a tragic death under the heavy hand of the Roman Empire. And maybe his, his followers kind of created this heroic martyr, what we now know today as Christianity. Others say it doesn't really matter. Everyone can decide for themselves who Jesus is, what he was about, what was his purpose really. And that's all that really matters. You figure it out for you. But wouldn't it be nice if Jesus actually told us from his own lips why he came? 
I mean, if Jesus told us his purpose and mission, wouldn't we want to go get past all the talking heads and get it straight from him? Wouldn't you want to know what was the why that was driving every decision he made on earth? And the good news is, as you probably are suspecting, he did tell us why he came. He loves us too much to leave us speculating. And so no matter where you find yourself on that journey of faith, this passage is going to meet us because we're going to get a clear articulation of what Jesus was about. And we're going to see his purpose that drove everything he did. And so if you have your Bible next to you, go ahead and turn it open to Luke chapter 19. And we're going to, be, we're going to start actually in verse 10. Like I said earlier, if you don't own a Bible, the one next to you is our gift to you. It's probably the greatest gift we could ever give you in plain English to hear God's words. The passage is bookmarked for you. And he says it, in this passage, Jesus is going to tell us his purpose and he's going to say it real plainly. Now, like I said, we're going to actually begin in the last verse of our passage of Scripture Day in chapter 19, verse 10. And we're going to begin with the last verse because that's where Jesus kind of comes out and gives his mission statement. And so if you want to think about it like this, it's like a movie or a, maybe a TV show where the very first scene opens up, but it's actually the very last scene. You're kind of seeing the final seconds of what's happening. And there's kind of some mystery to that. Maybe uh, you're trying to figure out, well, how is that going to happen? And then immediately following it jumps back to the beginning. And so as you view the whole storyline, you're viewing each detail with the end in mind. That's how I want us to look at this passage of Scripture today with, with the end in mind. As, as, we, as we see Jesus meeting these two people on his way to Jericho, I want you to have that verse in your head that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. To seek and save the lost. So like I said, in this particular part of the story, Jesus is going to be passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. And as he's passing through, he's going to meet two men. And these two men, after this interaction, this encounter with Jesus, will never be the same. And at the very end, he tells them what his purpose statement was. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now that title there, um, Son of Man, that was Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself. So when he was talking about himself all over 80 times throughout the New Testament, Jesus would say, the Son of Man came, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. And it was his way to talk about himself. You see, it was this throwback reference to some scriptures written hundreds of years ago that were talking about the one who would come to bring, to bring peace to all of the brokenness. I mean, you feel the brokenness around you, right? And in the midst of all that brokenness, these prophets had risen up and we're talking about there's coming a one, this son of man who will bring peace. He will bring order to the chaos. He will be the one to wipe the tears from their eyes. And so Jesus takes that title because he is that one who has come into the world to bring that peace. And he would tell people, the son of man came, the son of man came. And here he tells us the reason he came, which was to seek and save the lost. It's the why that drives the life and mission of Jesus. What he's saying is my purpose was to initiate relationships with those who are spiritually disconnected from God. Do you feel that way this morning? Do you feel spiritually disconnected from God? Well, I've got good news for you. Jesus came for you. He came to take the disconnected and connect them into a relationship with God. 
And if that's not clear on its own right now, it will be as we work our way through the story. Now, as we do, I want three words to be in your minds. Because when Jesus came with his purpose to seek and save the lost, he does so with a pursuit, a presence, and a power. If you're taking notes, that's a good thing to write down. Jesus came with a pursuit, a presence, and a power. And each man that he interacts with, you're going to see that pursuit, that presence, and that power. So let's jump into the text, Luke 18, verse 35. Listen to what he says. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Okay, he's headed uh, to Jericho, or he's headed to Jerusalem. He's passing through Jericho. And immediately we're introduced to a blind man who's outside of the city walls on the road and he's uh, by a roadside and he's been reduced to a life of begging. Now you have to jump back into the ancient world. Remember, this is before the Americans with Disabilities Act, okay? It's an ancient, brutal world. If you're blind or have some other congenital disability or become disabled, people just generally assume that it's because of some sin in your life or maybe it's some sin in the life of the people that are close to you, like your family members. And this man is outside of the protective walls of the city doing the only thing he really can do to earn a buck. He's been reduced to the daily grind of begging for money. So what do you think that does to a person to have to beg day in and day out? Like what would that do to you, like to your value as people are, are kind of stepping over you to get by? And, and as they're coming by, they see you and they kind of want to avoid um, eye contact because they can't stomach giving you another penny. And he's outside of the city walls where it's safe and protected. And so why is he outside? I mean, maybe he's gone outside of the city gates because you know what? He's blind, he's not deaf. He's just tired of the ridicule. He's tired of the names. He's tired of the speculation. And he's tired of the judging eyes passing by. I mean, I know he's blind, but you don't need eyes to feel that kind of judgment and condescension. You can just feel it. Or maybe he's outside of the city gates because he's been pushed out. They're like, we don't want you here anymore. You're not welcome on the streets of our Jericho. And so I've asked, where's his family? Like, who's, is, aren't there people who are supposed to be protecting him and helping him and standing in the gap for him? Maybe they've disowned him. Maybe, maybe they've just owned him to get as far away from this disability as possible. Or maybe they've passed away and he's all alone. But whatever the case is, hear me, Seven Mile, I need you to see him. We can't avoid him this morning. I actually need you to feel his need. I need you to feel his hurt. And did you catch, we don't even get his name. And I think that's intentional. The shame of being reduced to his blindness and begging has taken a toll on this man. Because when you beg for so long because you have nothing, after a while, the internal dialogue changes from I have nothing to I am nothing. Do you feel that? This man is in every way oppressed. I want you to feel that word on him. He's oppressed physically, right? You can't see. He's oppressed economically. He's got no money. He's oppressed socially. He's an outcast. He's oppressed psychologically. He's oppressed spiritually. And I want us to see him this morning. Let's look at the next verse, verse 36. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Okay, 
So this blind beggar, he hears a commotion and wants to know what's happening. And they tell him, hey, Jesus is passing by. And so as, as Jesus is drawing near to Jericho, there's a crowd starting to gather. And as you make your way through the New Testament, you'll find this happening all the time. Wherever Jesus is, there's a crowd. And during Jesus' day, when, when a, an important figure was going to a new place, it was customary for the people to kind of form a welcome party um, outside of the city gates as he's coming in just to welcome him. Hey, we are so honored, so grateful, so privileged, glad that you are here. And man, we've prepared a banquet. I mean, we've got food, we've got a whole thing, man. And if you need a place to stay, the best place in town, you are going to stay. So that's what this welcome party is doing to welcome Jesus. And look at verse 38. Hear the blind man. He says, he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front of this man rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. You see, the blind man hears that Jesus is coming and he cries out and begs, but not for money. He begs for mercy. Can you hear the desperation in his voice? And just as soon as he urges the courage to, to cry out, what happens? The crowd rebukes him. Shut up. Stay out of it. They're trying to put their best feet forward. They're trying to make an impression on Jesus. And they don't want him to be bothered by the crippled and the lame. I mean, talk about kicking a guy when he's down. But does he care? No. This might be his only chance. And so maybe he's heard stories about Jesus. Maybe he's heard commotion and he's like, I am not letting this man go by without him seeing me. So he cries out all the more. Now look at verse 40. Jesus stopped that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. So Jesus stops. He's on his way. He's got an agenda, but he stops. He hears the cries of this man and he says, bring him to me. Remember the mission of Jesus, right? To seek and save the lost. And this man, by any definition, no matter how you define it, is lost. To be lost is to be, it's to be without hope. There's a wholeness and a peace missing from this man's life. Do you see the pursuit of Jesus here? He stops. He's willing to be interrupted. That one really got me this week. Am I willing to be interrupted to help somebody else? Because man, I am type A. I am going. I've got things to do and I could blow right past you. Jesus stops. He's interrupted to pursue this man. And now there's an obstacle, right? Like you can just see it, right? Jesus stops, but then there's this crowd blocking this man. If they had understood the mission of Jesus, they would have had this guy fronting Jesus. This man has no hope. He's got nothing. Maybe you, we've heard stories. Maybe you can help this man. But they want to look like they have it all together. They want to look like there's nothing wrong in their city. And so Jesus commands the crowd to get out of the way and bring this man to him. You see, where the crowd marginalizes and pushes this man away, Jesus pursues and brings him near. And not only does the purpose of Jesus come with a pursuit, but now it comes with a presence. Do you see what's going on here? Jesus asks the man, what do you want me to do? 
He could have kept going without breaking his stride. He could literally, Jesus has the power. He could have done a drive-by healing. He could have been like, healed. And boom, this man would have received sight. But he stops and brings him near and gives him the dignity of a conversation. What do you want me to do? I've wondered, what, when was the last time somebody engaged and looked at this man without contempt, not seeing his blindness, but saw the man and gave him a conversation. Give him the humanity and the dignity of interaction. You see, Jesus doesn't just ask him what he wants because he doesn't know. It's clear what's going on in this man's life. He wants to give him the gift of his presence. Look at verse 42. The man asks for his sight to be recovered. And so Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately this man recovers his sight And look what it does. He followed him, glorifying God. And then all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. You see, this blind man has faith that Jesus has both the power and the compassion to heal. Jesus gives him the gift of his presence, but he also has the power to actually fulfill his purpose. Jesus has the power to heal this blind man's um, blindness. And in doing so, that which was lost was found. And so he does gain his sight. But think about it. He gains so much more. Think now that he's blind. He's able to work. He can actually have the dignity of a day's hard work and earn his living. He can rejoin community in the, within the city walls. And now maybe he could begin the long road of healing from this life of being an outcast. And what was the first thing that you think this man saw when his eyes were restored? Right there, up close and in person, he saw Jesus. And with this new sight, the very first thing he does upon seeing Jesus, put him and he glorified God. You remember the crowd? They were the ones who wanted to hush this man, silence the man. Now what happens in them? Not only is the man transformed, but the crowd is transformed. They're giving praise to God. They've just seen an amazing thing. So was this man saved physically? Yeah, he got his sight back, but he was also saved spiritually. The one who was disconnected from God is now brought into friendship with him. How do we know that? The text said that he starts following him and glorifying him. That's a mark of a life that has been transformed by the gospel. When we first met this man, he was sitting and begging. And now he's following and glorifying. Do you see the complete 180? He was down and out, oppressed in every way, and Jesus sought him and saved him. Now it's at this point in our story that Jesus keeps moving and we find another man who cannot see. Look with me at verse one. Jesus entered Jericho and he was passing through and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Okay, let me stop there and unpack some of this so we don't miss the irony that's going on. Names are important, right? They're incredibly important in the Bible. They carry weight and meaning. This man's name is Zacchaeus. Here's what his name literally means. Righteous. And so it's as if the text is saying, behold, there was a man and his name was righteous. 
And at the same time, what we find out about this man is that he's a chief tax collector. Now, if you're thinking, you know, you just dealt with the IRS back in April, don't think IRS here. It's far worse. You see, tax collectors worked for the Roman government, which was in Jerusalem. And what they would do is they'd move into a community and they would hire locals, right? And they would hire them to, find, uh, to collect taxes so they could finance the machine that is Rome. Now, Rome had a fixed amount that they had to collect from each community. And they let the tax collectors decide, hey, whatever else on top of that that you want to make a living, you go ahead and do it. Just make sure we get ours, but you can go ahead and get yours. Now, on one hand, an honest living, nobody, everybody's got to put food on the table. Hey, man, it's just, it's a job just like anybody else. You got to get paid. But what happened is that tax collectors in this vacuum of, of uh, uh, in, in this, in this um, oppressed kind of situation, they would take advantage of the people. They would take much more than Rome demanded and far more than an honest living. You see, Zacchaeus had worked the system and figured out how to become rich and by doing so, oppressor. He would exploit and extort his fellow Jews to get rich, and he would use whatever tactics necessary. So the literature of this time talks about these tax collectors as thugs. I mean, it led to threats. There's even talks of murder. And what you need to know about Zacchaeus is he is literally the worst human being in Jericho. Tax collectors were so despised at this time, they weren't even allowed in to the synagogues because synagogues, they were considered perpetually unclean. There's like nothing, there's, there was no sacrifice for them to be able to enter in. They were completely cut off from God. And Luke doesn't want you to miss that Zacchaeus was bad news. All of his wealth, remember it said he was rich, all of it came at the expense of others. He was an oppressor of the worst kind. You need to think soulless crime boss, malicious, repugnant, odious. And yet his name is righteous. The irony here is thick. Look at verse three. And he was seeking to see this, who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So Jesus has made his way into Jericho and that large crowd, remember them, who are rejoicing and praising, they're with him now. And Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, but the crowd is so large that he's unable to see him for he was a wee little man. Anybody singing for Zacchaeus? Okay, all right, be honest. But as you're singing that song, don't miss the point. The point isn't that he's short. See, had Zacchaeus been respected, right? They would have said, hey, Brother, come up to the front. You want to see Jesus? Here you go. If he had been respected, the crowd would have let him to the front to have a position to see. But his problem is, is that he's short and hated. And can you blame them for hating him? I mean, this is the man who has exploited their oppression, risen up as a tax collector, and chose to make life hell for all those around him. You see, instead of living up to his name as righteous, he has lived down to his stature and he's oppressed everyone around him. Consequences of this lifestyle is that Zacchaeus, he's always a man on the fringe. Every time he goes into a restaurant, he's got that table in the very back so he can see everything that's going on so nobody can get a jump on him. This is the guy that he is not invited to the kids' birthday parties. He's not welcomed by anyone. 
He's never a welcome presence in the crowd. Now don't miss this though. This is the second time we've met a man who cannot see, who's been seeing Jesus by a crowd, who's been pushed to the fringe. And so far, we saw Jesus come to the aid of the oppressed man. And so it begs the question, will Jesus come to the help of the man who is the oppressor? Will Jesus seek him out and draw him near? Let's look at verse four. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. So Zacchaeus, and fine in a way, he says, man, if I hustle up in front of the crowd, I can climb up the tree and then I've got this vantage point and I can see Jesus. And better yet, he won't be able to see me. I'll be well hidden and blocked by the tree. And so I can see Jesus on my terms and my way at my discretion. You see, Zacchaeus wants to size up Jesus and see what he's really all about. And so, I want to pause and just ask you a question. How many of you, if we're being honest, and you don't have to raise your hand, are doing the exact same thing? Keeping your distance, climbing trees, so that you can see Jesus from your vantage point with your prerogative, keeping your distance and hiding. And just so we're clear, I'm not just talking about the skeptics in the room, because believers, we like to hide in trees too, don't we? And that's fine if you are. That's fine if you're doing that. But you need to be honest about where you're looking at Jesus from. Now, let's look at verse five and see how Jesus interacts with people hiding in trees. And so when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. Uh-oh. Zacchaeus' hopes of staying up in the tree and hiding have been shattered. See, while Zacchaeus wants to keep his distance, Jesus loves him too much to lay him, let him stay up in the tree. And seven mile, hear me, look me right here. Jesus loves you too much to let you stay up there too. You see, he has a way of seeing us no matter where we try to hide. And so Jesus tells him, come down. Now again, don't forget about the crowd. They've kind of made their way up now. They're kind of gathering around. They hear that someone's up in the tree. And as this little man is making his way down, don't you feel the tension that maybe is starting to mount? Uh-oh, this is the guy we hate. Jesus, let him have it. Let this guy know what you're all about. So what kind of expectations do you think the crowd might have on Jesus right now? Right, this is a man who doesn't bear the name righteous. He's not a fellow uh, uh, he's not a, a good Jew, a good friend, a good neighbor. And so they probably expect Jesus to publicly shame this man and rebuke him. Maybe, maybe the conversation would have gone like this. Zacchaeus, you have oppressed these good people. You've taken way more than you need. You've used fear, scare tactics, and violence to oppress these good people. And when that didn't work out, you stole and murdered. How could you? How dare you betray your own people? And if Jesus would have given this rebuke, it would have secured the favor of the people. Not only is this the guy who helped the people up off the street, he's the guy cleaning up the streets as well. A guy to be cheered and welcomed. But instead, what does Jesus do? He calls Zacchaeus down and says, I must stay at your house. Now that may not seem shocking to you, 
But that was nothing short of Jesus rejecting their offer of hospitality. Remember the meal that they would have made for him? Remember the place that they would have provided for him? And Jesus is saying, no, no, I'm not going there. I'm going to Zacchaeus' house. I'll dine at his table. I'll sleep in his bed. I want to stay with Zacchaeus. How dare he become the guest of a notorious sinner? So what happens? What does Zacchaeus do? Look at verse six. So he hurried down and he received him joyfully. joyfully. And when they saw, this is the crowd, they all grumbled. And they said, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And so what happens there is that the crowd takes all of their hatred, all of their contempt of Zacchaeus, and now they place it on Jesus. They're grumbling about him now. So the cry for Zacchaeus has shifted to Jesus and Jesus has given up his favor that he had with the crowd to side with him. Zacchaeus receives unexpected and costly love because of what Jesus has done. Don't you see that? Jesus extends costly grace to the oppressor. All the fanfare, all the excitement about Jesus has now turned to grumbling. It's amazing in this story how scenes shift him, Jesus? You're going to his house? Do you see the pursuit of Jesus? He's willing to give up at cost to himself to pursue this man. He won't let Zacchaeus stay hiding. He could have walked right by knowing he's there and going, it's not worth my time. He calls him down. He gives up favor to go after this man. And what happens to Zacchaeus? It says that he received him joyfully. What do you do when Jesus invites himself over to your house unexpectedly for dinner? I mean, there's no time to go home and tidy up. There's no time to sweep things under the rug. There's no time to, to clean up whatever shady business affairs you've got going on. Jesus has invited himself and they're headed that way now. And it says that he received him with joy. I, when was the last time Zacchaeus felt joy. You got to know in the stillness and the quietness of his soul that he hated himself for what he was doing. All alone, eating meals, all, for all his riches and wealth, he was completely alone. And for the first time in a long time, he feels joy. And so this invitation is starting to change something in Zacchaeus. Something amazing happens at dinner. Jesus gives him the gift of his presence. Remember, not only does his power, to, not only does Jesus's purpose come with a pursuit, it also comes with a presence, right? They're sitting down in an intimate setting like a dinner. I wish we had the transcript of that dinner conversation, but we don't know what was said. But here's what we know. With their sitting in a home that has been paid for by the blood of his own countrymen, after years of extortion and exploitation, they're eating, drinking good drink from the thuggery of Zacchaeus. And over this meal, Zacchaeus experiences the presence of Jesus. And as he does, something profound starts to happen inside of him. And I think it might be an understatement to say, but this day has gone way differently than Zacchaeus had planned. Now let's look at verse eight. Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, this is right after dinner, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, frauded anyone, understatement, right? 
If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, do you see what's just happened? Zacchaeus has been changed by costly love. In his resolution, in his statement to give back what he's stolen, he offers a confession and, a, and, a, and an evidence of a change of heart. You see, listen, this is what he says. When he says, I'll restore what I've stolen fourfold, he above and beyond. Not only is he saying, right now, I'm just going to give half of what I have to the poor. But now, on the matters of defrauding people as a tax collector, the law said if a tax collector kind of accidentally took a tax more than they were supposed to, and it was found out, then they would just, you know, kind of hand it back one for one. If it had been shown that he had taken, um, that he had kind of made up the tax, claimed there was a tax, but there wasn't, the tax collector had to pay back two for one. If it was proven in a court of law that he had outright done malicious tactics to get it, he'd have to pay back three for one. Zacchaeus goes far beyond that and says, for what I've done, fourfold. I have defrauded, I've stolen, I be, I've got to go in a radical way to show that, that my heart has been changed. What he gives back, he's defrauded. He gives back what he has defrauded. He's saying, I know I've hurt. I know I've stolen. I know I've taken what I don't deserve. And now I have to make some restitution. Now, don't miss this. We are so conditioned, especially here in New England, to think that we have to merit our worth, that we have to kind of earn our place, that we have to earn our salvation, that you might think this is his way to, to, to earn Jesus's love. But that would be wrong. Jesus has already loved this man. What Zacchaeus is doing is not of things he needs to do to be transformed. What he's saying, the things he's doing is has been transformed. The change has already taken place. And now what's flowing from him is love and generosity and this, this new heart that wants to make restitution. At his house, we come to find out that Zacchaeus understood, understood exactly what Jesus had done for him. He knew exactly what Jesus did. And sitting there in his presence, he is changed and never the same. Now, let's look what Jesus says to him. Jesus said to him, today, right now, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. So Jesus affirms this change of heart and says, this very day, salvation, new life, what was disconnected is now connected to God. That this lost son has come home. And he kind of restores him. He says, you are a son of Abraham. You're now back with your people. You can now live up to your name, Zacchaeus. In this meal, Zacchaeus comes face to face with love, the tr with the love and truth and beauty of Jesus. And now everything else that he used to hold so dear, all the money, all the power, all the control, he's willing to just give it up because of this Jesus. Looking at Jesus, everything else pales in comparison. And now his hands are free. He's given up the money. Now his hands are free to embrace and his eyes are free to gaze on Jesus. Because when you truly see Jesus for who he is, you will start to rethink everything in your life. Everything that is so precious and dear to you in the light of some greater beauty, a greater truth, a greater joy, everything else starts to pale in comparison. You start to redefine things in light of who he is. And maybe for the first time in your life, 
you'll know that you are truly known and fully loved. That's what happened to Zacchaeus. It wasn't that Jesus didn't know about his past. He knew everything about him and that didn't stop his love. And so for the first time in his life, Zacchaeus is known truly for all the unrighteousness that's there. And yet he's loved fully and it changes him. And now the joy and generosity and the righting of wrongs start flowing from his heart. Being, changed being leads to new doing. And you can almost hear Jesus say, Zacchaeus, this whole time, you thought you were trying to come and see me, but this whole time, I've been seeking you. I have come to seek and save the lost. And friend, the good news today is that same Jesus who sought out the blind man, that same Jesus who sought out Zacchaeus is seeking you now. Do you see it now? Do you see his pursuit? Do you see his presence? Do you see his power as he comes to seek and save the lost? And then these two stories held together, we have the mission of God himself. Jesus in love to the blind and the oppressed. And at the same time, he initiates love to blind oppressors. There's an Old Testament book called Ecclesiastes. It's kind of like our philosophy book. Um, and it's really amazing stuff. And Solomon, at the end of his life, he's just kind of waxing philosophical, kind of uh, in, in, in this life that he's lived, he's kind of um, spouting out some truths that he's seeing. And, and, and this is one that he says, at the end of his life, he says, look, I, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And maybe you like him, you see the oppression. I mean, turn on the news, open up your Twitter feed. It is just full of hate and racism, and oppression, and violence, right? You don't have to just see it on the news. You can walk outside the door, walk these streets, and you'll see it. Solomon saw the same thing. He said, I see all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, those who are pushed down to comfort them. And this is profound. Look what he says. On the side of the oppressors, there was power. But listen, there was no one to comfort them either. Because there's, there's a breaking down of your humanity when you become an oppressor. And what Solomon couldn't see, we see in Jesus. There is one who comes to wipe the tears of the oppressed and to wipe the tears of the oppressors. What's profound is not simply that Jesus seeks and saves the who he comes after. He will seek out the downcast, the one who can't contribute anything to society. And at the same time, he will go after the very ones who are ripping the society to shreds. That's our Jesus. And it gets at the very heart of the Bible that no one, everyone, no matter who they are, is lost and needs Jesus. And the good news is their needs are perfectly met by him. And we in this room are in no less need of the transforming presence and power of Jesus. And that's the point of this message. We are just like them. Everyone in this room, if we were to go around, we could talk about the ways that we've been oppressed and hurt and pushed down by people. And if we were honest, we could all talk about ways to some degree or another in which we have been oppressors, where we have pushed down people, where we have wronged others. And the good news is, that not only are we oppressed and oppressors, but Jesus meets us both in that tension, on that spectrum. In the same way he met Zacchaeus and the blind man, he meets us too. Because everyone is lost. 
But the good news is that everyone has provision in Jesus. And so as we close up, I want to ask some questions. Write these down. What would be different about you if you came face to face with Jesus? What would be different about you? Now listen, very carefully. I didn't say, what would you do different? That's almost always our gut reaction is, okay, I've got to do something different. I'm asking a being question. What would be different about you if you came face to face with Jesus? Like what would change in that moment? Both our friends in these passages were changed in the moment of finally seeing Jesus. How would you look differently after looking at him? And so for anyone here this morning who's seeking to get a look at Jesus, what is keeping you from coming down from your place of hiding this morning? The transfer of the blind man in Zacchaeus is available to us because Jesus, friends, is still seeking and saving the lost. And for any believers, anyone who would say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, what parts of your life still need the transforming power of Jesus' presence? Because we are all works in progress. We're not changed by Jesus and made perfect, right? We are a work in progress, a, a, a glory that is being revealed slowly bit by bit. So we need Jesus too. Where are you broken? Where do you need to cry out for the son of David to have mercy on you? Where are you hiding? Because like I said, we like to hide in trees. And last thing I'll say on application is this. Don't miss the implication for followers of Jesus because Jesus is saying, this is what I came for. Following Jesus implies we follow his, we follow his mission. So if Jesus is seeking and saving the lost, that means there's a call on our lives too to seek and save the lost. So we get to be like Jesus. We get to pursue others. We get to give them the radical generosity of hospitality and our presence. And I don't simply mean by hosting a meal. I, I mean that, but I mean much more than that. I mean welcoming the outsider with generosity so that they experience your presence and by doing so experience the very real presence of Jesus Christ himself. And friends, that love is powerful. That love will transform you, your family, your neighbor, and my hope is that it will transform this community. So who are the oppressed that you need to pick up off the floor? Who are the oppressed that you need to have the courage to come alongside and show them love. Write down their names, begin praying, and trust that the Spirit will lead you in those ways. Father, you are good. You are generous. And if we had any doubt, this passage clears it up today. You love us with the love of Jesus and you beckon us to you. So God, I pray for the oppressed in this room. Anyone who feels pushed down right now, for whatever, in, in whatever way, whether it's uh, 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 hard relationships or maybe it's systemic and, and bigger than any of us can put our minds around right in this moment, whatever it is, Lord, would you, like you did with that blind man, would you pick them up off the street? Would you let them know that your love is for them? And for any of us here who have a history of being and that's all of us, because we all hurt those around us. Would you help us see the love of Jesus so that we can come down out of hiding? And so, Spirit, would you move in this place? We trust you to do that. In Christ's name, amen.